Good morning, Hayden Bible Church. Welcome. Happy Father's Day again. Thank you. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so grateful for the regenerating of the Holy Spirit that you applied to our hearts and brought us to life and caused us to to rejoice in the name of Jesus Christ, the King of glory. Lord, today, speak to us through your word. Lord, we do pray that you speak till your whole church is built and the whole earth is full of your glory. Today, we pray that that's a step in that direction. We thank you for this holy word. Lord, Holy Spirit, teach us. Open our eyes. Open our hearts, help us to understand, let it bear fruit, and most of all, Lord, let this bless you, and let this time be all to the glory of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews 10, we're going to be in verses 1 through 18 this morning. Anybody here last week, by by the way? Yeah? We got to see eight baptisms right here in this room. Yeah. And by the way, thanks to Pastor Daryl, and he would say all glory to God for building this tank over here that we get to, to enjoy those baptisms right here. I don't know if you noticed, but the prevailing theme among everybody being baptized was real joy. Did anybody else notice that? I noticed it. In some cases, it was joy inexpressible and full of glory. A joy of finally found freedom. Joy as those who were released from the judgment and condemnation of their nagging, inescapable, incessant knowledge of sin and debilitating guilt before God. A a, a joy of finally found freedom. A perpetual life of shame, but yet now liberated. Freed from it. Rejoicing as we watch them be baptized. I saw people jumping for joy in their hearts as they testified outwardly through baptism of what had happened to them inwardly through the new birth. I wonder if you have that joy this morning. The joy of liberation. The joy of final, lasting cleanness before our holy God. The joy where you have confidence that your sin has been fully and finally dealt with. And it will never, ever come between you and your great God again. The joy of the psalmist King David, who he said, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Or the joy of the Apostle Paul who told the Romans, he said, having been justified by faith that they have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ through whom also they have access by faith into grace in which they stand and they rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Is that your joy this morning? I know it's mine. Because listen, you cannot serve God or glorify God or even live joyfully if you constantly feel disgusting and dirty and shameful before him. This morning we're blessed with the living and active, spirit-enlivened word of God right in your laps. You can hold it in your hands. 
Did, the, did you know that this word that you have in your Bibles is God's special revelation of himself to you personally? A gift from himself to you to know freedom from your and my sinful, guilty, shameful experience. To know the joy of liberating salvation, like, like in those we saw last week in the baptisms. This morning in our passage, the Hebrews needed this special revelation too. They were a mixed assembly of people. There were some born-again believers mixed with some lost people still standing on their own merits, all in the same congregation, under significant persecution for leaving their former life under the ceremonial law of God in Judaism. Historically, the temple of God was still standing. Sacrifices were still being offered. You could walk by and see a whole religious system that was tangible and even controllable to some extent. Yet Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, had been crucified. The final atonement offered. And he had died and was buried. And and conquering death, he was raised three days later, resurrected to life. And seen by hundreds who were astonished to see him breathing. And they saw him ascend to the throne of God where he sat down at the majesty of the right hand of God. The place of all authority in heaven and on earth to begin his reign as king of glory. Until all his enemies are subdued under his feet. Until the final enemy even would be destroyed death itself. There were those Hebrews who had heard this gospel of the kingdom. They left their perceived security under the ceremonial law of Moses, and they were immediately confronted with the same struggle that many of us wrestle against. Is Jesus enough to take away my shame? Or should I do more? Can I really trust him alone? Or do I need to add something? Let's look at our Bibles and find out. Read along with me. We're going to start in Hebrews 10, starting in verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins. Year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. 
waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. What is it that you run to this morning for freedom from your guilt and shame? What's your plea of acceptance before God? Where do you hide from his holy gaze? Is your plea the cleanness of your life? The absence of feelings of guilt and shame maybe? Your joyful attitude, maybe your jovial personality is your plea, and you're not like those other depressed people, you're jovial. Maybe it's your association with Hayden Bible Church, or that certain preacher you watch on YouTube. Maybe you cling to your participation in every single possible activity happening here at Hayden Bible Church. That's your plea for right standing. Maybe it's your knowledge of doctrine. You call yourself a wretch because you know that it's the doctrinal truth and it's actually hip to say that in your circles and your YouTube channels. But ironically, maybe you puff out your chest as you glory in your understanding of the doctrines of grace, showing that you don't understand at all. Maybe the plea you have is false. Or maybe you acknowledge this morning that you have no plea at all. You measure yourself against other Christians and feel ill-equipped and empty. You're not like that jovial guy. You can only make it to one study a week. You see that your contributions are insufficient. There are those of us here this morning with nothing. Bankrupt of spirit. Absolutely nothing to bring to the table but our sin. Nothing in ourselves, nothing noteworthy. All we have is absolutely nothing. This morning, you need a strong and perfect plea. Just like the Hebrews, our lives too have many attractive places to attempt to find shelter from God's wrath. But today we'll see the only place of real lasting forgiveness is in Jesus Christ. You'll see this morning that your personal meritorious activities cannot perfect you in God's eyes. And you'll see God's compassionate loving kindness in giving one final and eternal sacrifice for the benefit of each who will trust in him alone for your salvation. Under intense compulsion to flee back to the Mosaic system of keeping God's wrath at bay. To escape the discomfort of standing on Christ as opposed to a system that was never intended to provide lasting appeasement of God's wrath. A system that was only intended as a shadow of the real thing. The Hebrews needed to finally rest on Christ. Because even in the turmoils and temptations to find my own way of being accepted before God, the truth is only Jesus Christ is my sufficient Savior. Only Jesus Christ is my sufficient Savior. He is sufficient. He alone by himself is enough. He alone is adequate. He alone is my strong and perfect plea before the wrath of our holy God. He alone 
achieves my right standing before God. He alone is my liberation from the bondage of guilt and shame and my new joy of salvation. Jesus Christ is my sufficient Savior. Listen again from verse 1. It says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. The wonderful ceremonial law that the Jews had been given by Moses was a grace of God in itself, allowing for atonement to take place so that a relationship with God could be maintained. But the problem is it wasn't lasting. It didn't bring about the fullness of God's total will concerning the sanctification of his people. It turns out that this ceremonial law was only a short-lived, not-lasting foreshadow of the perfect things that would come later. The Hebrews were faced with a choice. Will I continue to trust in the preview of the good things to come or actually rest on the very things themselves, namely the body and blood of Christ, the strong and perfect plea? The very Lamb of God, who John says takes the way of the sin of the world because Jesus Christ alone is my sufficient Savior. We have a parallel in our lives. We have a choice as well. Uh, Any pathway of right standing or clean relationship, removal of guilt and shame before God that we try to pursue independent of Christ will only leave us bankrupt and without any hope in this world. The world's best doesn't take the promise away. Excuse me, the problem away. I was thinking of, a, of secular therapy as a good example. As, as good and intentioned as it is by people with hearts to help others, and they truly do want to help, it cannot cleanse your conscience of sinful guilt and shame before our great God. It's impossible for it to do that. It doesn't last. It's not soul care. At best, it's a preview of the real and lasting true liberation found in Christ alone. It turns out that the Hebrews had to stay on the wagon, so to speak. They had to hang on with all their strength to stay right with God. Yet they were without strength like us. Listen to verses 2 and 3 regarding the effectiveness of these continuous sacrifices under the law. The writer says, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. Remember, you can't serve God or glorify God or even live joyful if you constantly feel disgusting and dirty and shameful before him. The ceremonial law that the Hebrews were tempted to run to, to run home to, actually it served the opposite purpose. It it continually reminded them of their sinful insufficiencies year by year. It didn't clean their conscience and liberate them to serve God. It didn't perfect them in that way. That way that would lead to a living of righteousness, peace, and joy. Some of you have been in Christian groups where the tendency is merely therapeutic. It's a time together to share about each one's sinfulness. Sinful tendencies, sinful thoughts, sinful failures, continuous weekly confessions of indiscretions and failures. 
without ever a thought of a life truly cleansed of an evil conscience. Instead, it's a reminder of your sins week after week, year after year. This merely therapeutic Christian life, it feels good for a moment, but it can't last. Instead, it's actually a focus on the bankruptcy of self as opposed to the hope and joy of our salvation in Christ. So remember this morning, first of all, that only Jesus can cleanse my conscience of sin. There's no other way. You can try as many things as you want. There's a whole industry out there trying to help people have a conscience cleansed free of sin. But the only true source is Jesus Christ for that cleansing. Because Jesus Christ is my sufficient Savior. Only Jesus is the liberator, the rescuer, the redeemer, the Savior of all of us who finally rest on him alone. Instead of a merely therapeutic small group, as a group, turn your eyes to Christ and rejoice in his wonder and majesty. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Redeem your small group. Regarding the Hebrews, look at verse 4 and forward. It teaches us that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, When he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. The whole word of God testifies to this Redeemer. For example, Hebrews quotes this from this passage from Psalm 40. A psalm of David, a song of deliverance, a liberation, of rescue, of redemption, a song of God himself being the very sustenance of needy people like us. And it turns out it's the perfect psalm pointing out the replace, the, to the pointing to the replacement of the preview, the sacrifices and offerings and the replacement with, of those things with the perfect. God himself is our salvation and joy. God did ordain the sacrifices and offerings, but only under the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant which foreshadowed the real and intended ultimate new covenant in Christ's blood through the cross of Calvary. Where the body prepared for him was broken and the will of God carried out to provide eternal redemption for his people. It turns out that the Son came willingly to carry out the Father's will. In fact, he testified of the same thing in other scriptures. Listen to John 6. It says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. I wonder this morning, has the Father given you to the Son? How would you know? Here's how. You behold the Son and believe in Him. You rest on Him alone and confess Him as your strong and perfect plea. You acknowledge Jesus Christ this morning as your sufficient Savior. Look at verses 8 through 10. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, 
Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Christ came to replace the preview, and he himself is the reality. The reality of the once-for-all offering of the body of Jesus Christ, purchasing our very sanctification, our, our being separated out and redeemed as a people for God's special purpose. Jesus' obedience and suffering is your and my liberating and lasting atonement. In Christ, there is no more reminder of sins year by year. Instead, as we rest in his obedience on our behalf, we have freedom of conscience. Knowing our sins and accompanying guilt and shame are totally paid for at the cross. And his spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. This is the joy you saw last week at the baptisms. Jesus Christ is my sufficient Savior. Also notice in verse 10 that the offering of the body of Christ is once for all. If you have a pencil or a pen and a highlighter and then another highlighter in a different color and some more pens, take care of business on that little phrase, once for all. Once for all means it was the final, ultimate, and sufficient sacrifice so that no other sacrifices are ever needed. It would be absolute stupidity for the Hebrews, or any of us for that matter, to revert back to animal sacrifices to maintain our right standing before God. In fact, it's so definitive that God ordained the total destruction of his temple 2,000 years ago that so absolutely all the glory of this once-for-all sacrifice would belong solely to Jesus Christ alone. Listen to Hebrews 7. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Again in chapter 9, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Romans 6.10 agrees. It says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Hopefully you have that phrase memorized by now. Peter also agrees. He says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Be convinced this morning that only Jesus can keep me reconciled to God. Only Jesus. No one else, not even me. In fact, thousands of Old Testament priests, professionals in the Mosaic ceremonial law, could never achieve what this one priest accomplished with his one act of righteousness. By the way, that's a hint to go to Romans 5 later and study that. 
But for now, let's look down at verses 11 and 12. It says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. What is it that you do time after time, daily maybe, to ease your evil conscience from the discomfort and the guilt and shame of sin? Some people take drastic measures to atone for themselves. In fact, self-harm is actually common. Cutting, starving, hiding with pills, or even avoiding people, or checking out of fellowship, or self-loathing. Those things can never take away sins. They can never take away guilt and shame. Only Jesus Christ is my sufficient Savior. If you're forgiven, you can be sure this morning that your forgiveness lasts forever. Because only my Jesus can keep me reconciled to God. If you're not convinced, skip down to verse 14 for proof. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Build your life on that promise. Perfected for all time. I I hope you're standing on Christ this morning. Note back to verse 11, that these priests would stand daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. Their work was never complete. The problem never went away. What they did could never take away sins. All they could do was get you in the door so that you could worship in the temple, but then another sin atonement cycle began. It was a nauseous merry-go-round of a system that priests had to keep maintaining. It was a juggling act that never seemed to end. But this one special priest, the one of a different priestly order, the one born in Bethlehem, the one who grew up in Nazareth, the one without beginning and without end, the word of God himself, the very communication of the heart of God who became flesh and dwelt among us, a spotless lamb who willingly went to a cross and passed through the heavens. And here in verses 12 and 13, after having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. His work was finished. I'm excited to proclaim to you this morning that your Jesus, your Savior, he's currently seated on his throne. We sing that, don't we? Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our king, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. He's seated right now in the place of all authority. In fact, Matthew 28, he himself says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he ordains... Crazy as it sounds, he ordains that you and I have a role to play as he sits on his throne commanding that we go and make disciples of all nations until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Until we all come under the lordship of Christ, King, 
In our passage here, Hebrews is quoting Psalm 110. The song of the dominion of the conquering king. In fact, this royal psalm cries out the glory of the dominion of a special priest king sitting on the throne of God, reigning in his Davidic kingship by the authority of his resurrection from the dead until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. The writer of Hebrews is enamored with this thought in the same 110, Psalm 110 concept, just like we should be. Psalm 13, or excuse me, Hebrews 1.3, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 1.13, God says to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 8.1, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the, thr- of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Here in 10, 12, and 13, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, waiting until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 12, 2, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Psalm 99, 5, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Isaiah 66, 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. It's all over the place. And listen to Peter, to the Jews in Acts 2. It says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And certainly Peter and the other disciples demonstrated the beginning of that process as they spread the word of God and multitudes of people were brought under his lordship through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our job. Be convinced again this morning that only Jesus, he alone is worthy of all honor and praise and glory. And you and I are called into this participation of overcoming his enemies by the powerful, living, and active word of God and the glorious gospel of Christ until all his enemies submit to his lordship, until every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then the last enemy that will finally be defeated at the end of all this Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, is death. Glory to God. Look back down to 14. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. This is actually the second time Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31. The covenant of Jeremiah 31 is the new covenant. A covenant where God takes the initiative and establishes the new covenant after the days of the old covenant. He takes away the first, the Mosaic covenant, in order to establish the second, the new covenant in Christ's blood. And in that new covenant rests the Israel of God. All the people through all time who have come to a saving knowledge of God by faith founded on the redemption achieved through the cross of Christ. 
and both in our Jeremiah and Hebrews text, confirm that anyone comes, who comes under this new covenant has God's laws written on their hearts and on their minds, as opposed to merely external tablets of stone. Believe this this morning. A born-again Christian, born of the Spirit, is obedient from the heart. A born-again Christian will never again, ever, disagree with God regarding what is and what is not sin. Albeit that person will struggle against sin. Because a born-again Christian is a slave of righteousness, a change in their core nature, but still yet indwelt by remaining sin. Listen to the good news in verse 17, though. He says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. You, believer, are under grace now. Your sin will never, never, ever, ever, never, forever come between you and your gracious God again. Because Jesus Christ is my sufficient Savior, I am completely accepted in my beloved. My sins and lawless deeds will never be thrown into my face again. I can stand fast in the liberty where which Christ has made me free and never be subject to a yoke of bondage ever again. Weary and heavy laden, exhausted from the yoke of the law, I've come to Christ now. I've taken his yoke upon me and found rest for my soul. Have you? Because listen to verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus is your only hope. Nothing else can be done to wash away your sin. Listen, saints of God, before the throne of God above, I have a strong, and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Jesus Christ is my sufficient, sufficient Savior. All glory to Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing that this once-for-all sacrifice is sufficient even for me. Father, I pray here this morning that someone else has been convinced of the same thing by the regenerating work of your Holy Spirit, and they cry out for salvation and can have confidence that that blood can be applied to them as well, freeing them from guilt and shame, sinfulness. Lord, we glory in Christ this morning. We thank you that the standing that you've given us before the throne is a standing of confidence that will never change. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In his name we pray.